All right. Happy Tuesday, ladies and gentlemen. I got the evening right this time. Welcome to Savvy Sabs Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Salvati. My special guest today is doing phenomenal journalism. He's the co-editor of The Gray Zone. Everyone, please give a huge welcome to Max Blumenthal. Welcome, Max. Thanks a lot, Sabrina. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Appreciate the invite. Good to uh, be here with your audience. Cool. So um, before we get started, Max, why don't you tell everyone, like, why did you decide to get into independent journalism and how did you get started at the Gray Zone? That's a, yeah, there's there's hardly any short answer to that, but um, I can tell you it was the right move because there was really no place for me in non-independent journalism. Um, there's really very few places to not follow a pretty much a U.S. government line within mainstream media right now. And it, you can see it clearly just in the way that the media is reacting to Biden withdrawing troops from Afghanistan after 20 years. They are essentially a voice of the Pentagon. And it's been that way pretty much my whole life. Um, I mean, I come from, you know, a family where there, you know, journalism and politics was everywhere. But I actually hadn't intended originally on a career in journalism. And it was really the, the post 9-11 era, Bush's war on terror, and then Bush's alliance with the Christian right and the way that the media was embracing George W. Bush, uh, that he was beloved, not only is, you know, a situation that would be familiar to people right now who are upset about the bipartisan consensus that the media was just embracing Bush after 9-11, but also the Democrats were. And I knew that this was an extremely dangerous president, that the war on terror was going to be a disaster. And so I started out then, and that was when blogging was becoming a thing. I mean, the internet really was, in, in, online journalism was very marginal before the post 9-11 era. And so I was one of the original kind of blogspot bloggers. I was writing for salon.com when it was like a very widely read publication and you could actually be anti-war and anti-imperialist and have a wide audience there. And I just started picking up the phone, doing cold calls, doing shoe leather journalism. I was, um, you know, funding my journalism career by, uh, you know, living very cheaply and working as a substitute teacher, delivering food, uh, whatever I had to do part time. And then I'd spend the rest of the three or four days of the week I had um, doing journalism. And, you know, eventually it became a career. And the gray zone was the result of the complete collapse of progressive media in the Trump era, when we saw publications like Alternate, Salon.com, The Nation take on Russiagate and just uh, take on the new Cold War. Uh, essentially, it was like the war on terror for Democrats. It was disgusting. And uh, they all collapsed for different reasons um, that I I don't really want to get into, but you can just look at, look at the... the what happened to all of the flagship progressive media sites that were taking on George W. Bush in the post 9-11 era and how they all collapsed or fell under the control of establishment Democrats. And the gray zone was really something I created because I had nowhere else to go. And it took off. We just filled a void. We found that people were with us. They were supporting us. 
And now we have, you know, Ben Norton, Aaron Mate, Anya Parampil, and a whole bunch of contributors. And I feel like other sites have flourished as well who are doing the anti-imperialist journalism we're doing. And we've kind of helped anchor a new media ecosystem. And then we see with you and with Nick and so many other podcasters, um, I can name so many of them. I, I, I'm familiar with you through him because uh, of you, you were in his comment section. And uh, then I started checking out your work um, that, you know, we are forced to be reckoned with right now. Um, I think probably the loudest voice, uh, left-wing voice that's really resisting the kind of bipartisan consensus is Jimmy Dore. And he's sort of another anchor uh, he's given us a big platform at the gray zone, but we, wherever we can find a legitimate platform, we're just going to get in where we can fit in and people, whatever we say resonates with people because they see that we are still living, we're living in a declining empire and both parties are, they both have skin in the Imperial game. Yeah. Um, my dad was in the military and so I have always been anti-war because my dad told me about stories, things that he experienced, what he saw like as a soldier. And I also saw the effect of war on soldiers when they returned home and the effects that it had on children. So I've always been anti-imperialist. Um, I want to get into what's going on in Afghanistan because <sighs> it boggles my mind how people are cheering saying that, oh, Joe Biden is, he's getting rid of the war in Afghanistan. And I'm gonna share my screen to show you this for just a second. Um, this was something I tweeted recently because it just really bothered me. And I said that all those people that said Biden's doing a great job, we're leaving Afghanistan. Meanwhile, in cabal, stop believing Joe Biden. And this is the picture here. Um, Afghan family is uh, massacred in U.S. drone strike in Cabal. Nine people killed, including six children. And I want to get your opinion on this because we have a lot of people, a lot of commentators saying that Joe Biden's doing a great job and that he's getting us out of Afghanistan. And it's like they're completely ignoring the fact that they're still doing airstrikes. They're still killing innocent people. I want to get your take on that. Well, they'll continue doing things like this. Uh, but this airstrike was particularly egregious. And we need to look at the situation, not just as Joe Biden calling all the shots, just as Donald Trump didn't call the shots. Both Joe Biden and Donald Trump wanted to end George W. Bush and Barack Obama's war in Afghanistan. Bush started it. Obama escalated it. He let the generals run rampant. His Pentagon and the civilians in it lied to the American public. They knew it was a failed war. And it's really Obama and Bush who we need to blame and, and criminally prosecute. Donald Trump came in knowing that the war had to end and he was rolled by the military uh, at every step of the way. The Pentagon is probably the most powerful institution in our society, uh, arguably more powerful than US intelligence and it's part of the same apparatus. And I can give examples of how Trump was rolled every step of the way. Biden comes in having seen what took place under the Obama administration, how the generals lied to Obama, how Obama fell for it, how people in Obama's Pentagon tricked him, like Michelle Flournoy, for example, who he kept out of the Pentagon. He did not appoint her as defense secretary. 
Biden believes that his son, Bo, his smart son, not like the crazy, stupid, fail son, Hunter, who he's left with, died as a result of going to Iraq and dying in the burn pits. There are these bases in Iraq where um, artillery, spare parts, all kinds of chemicals were basically being burned outside and the soldiers were inhaling all of the fumes and they came back with just disproportionate rates of cancer similar to Agent Orange after Vietnam. His son died of brain cancer. He correct he connects his son Bo's death to the burn pits in Iraq. And Joe Biden, remember, he whipped the vote for the vote in for the for the war in Iraq. He was one of the loudest democratic voices along with Hillary Clinton supporting Bush's war in Iraq. So he holds himself personally responsible for his son's death. He is a tortured person who as we see is mentally just kind of hanging on to consciousness. And this is his last cause, is trying to get out of Afghanistan. It's the first time we've seen a US president actually resist the Pentagon this strongly. And I really encourage everyone to watch Biden's speech today. He actually cited the Brown uh, Cost of War Project, which found that the US has spent $4 trillion on these failed wars in the Middle East. He cited the rate of suicides by soldiers every day, something like 18 a day. And he said that the 1% of our population who is paying the cost of these wars, the service members and veterans need to stop being forced to sacrifice so the rest of the society can enjoy a false sense of safety for wars that only make the US more unsafe. And these are the things that Barack Obama should have come in and said. It's what Barack Obama promised he would come in and say before Obama betrayed all of his campaign promises. And of course, Biden's betrayed almost every other promise, but here he is attempting to do something. So he gets all the, he gets all the Afghan collaborators. They're not just interpreters. They're people who are in death squads, who the hell knows what they were doing, but their lives are in peril because they worked with the U.S. occupation and they go, they, it, they get them to the Kabul airport in the middle of Kabul. There's pretty much no way to secure the airport. Mm-hmm. And they're sitting ducks for ISIS-K. Who knows who controls ISIS-K? It could be elements of the deposed Afghan government that want to keep U.S. troops bogged down there. And they, everyone knows there's going to be bombings. It takes place. U.S. troops start shooting everywhere as they do after so many bombings. That's just kind of what happens. After roadside bombings, they just shoot wildly everywhere and they start killing civilians. So they wind up killing some of the people they're supposed to evacuate. It's a complete disaster, a bloodbath. And then the Pentagon says, you know, we need to do a retaliatory airstrike. And Biden has does it for political expediency because he has to vow revenge on ISIS and they kill a family. It's a disgusting situation. Any US president who would try to leave Afghanistan at this point would face a similar situation. And we have to consider what happened to JFK, John F. Kennedy, when he tried to prevent all the escalations in Vietnam and then wound up agreeing to half of them, when he took on the Joint Chiefs over the Cuban Missile Crisis, when he kind of half-heartedly challenged the, the entire apparatus of the Cold War in one of his final speeches at American University. Well, he lost his head, literally. So we're not just dealing with Joe Biden here. We're dealing with what Donald Trump called the deep state. We're dealing with the military intelligence apparatus, a national security state that is firmly entrenched 
and which essentially controls U.S. government. And what Biden is going to do here is, in his mind, he'll win. He'll get to achieve something for himself psychologically. He will achieve something for a lot of the families who sacrificed in Afghanistan and whose sons and daughters died in vain for the most pointless criminal war of the last of recent of the recent era. And then U.S. troops will be repositioned to fight China in the pivot for Asia. And by that point, I think Biden will be a sort of personally a spent force. But we can't just completely trash him without acknowledging where the real power lies. And you know, I, I hate to say that because I don't hate to say it, but I, I have to say it in spite of the fact that I cannot stand what Biden has done throughout his career. I think he is one of the most toxic politicians who served in the Senate. Agreed. Um, I want to share something with you that Unapologetic posted uh, recently. Um, he's also a leftist commentator and he focuses a lot on foreign policy. And I saw this earlier today. And he said that when Biden says he's ending the Afghan war, he means he's removing the risk of U.S. troops being killed in military ops. We will continue to fight terrorism in Afghan. He'll continue doing airstrikes like the one that killed civilians this week. The genocide of Afghans won't stop. And I want to get your opinion on that. Do you feel that this is an actual genocide that's happening here? I, I, don't, I don't know if I can address the question of genocide, but the, the, the underlying premise of that comment is correct. Um, we published a, republished a piece by Jeremy Kuzmarov at Covert Action Quarterly, we republished it at the Gray Zone about the coming hybrid war in Afghanistan. The, the US doesn't wage war like with tanks and conventional forces anymore. There's no need for like the A-10 warthog tank hunter. There is no need for the Crusader artillery system. I really question the need for the Abrams tank and the Bradley fighting vehicle. All of these pieces can probably be put to rest um, and the only reason the U.S. Navy exists is because the U.S. is essentially inciting a new Cold War and brinksmanship with China. So what the, the true face of U.S. war right now is what we would call hybrid war. It can destroy entire countries through economic warfare. It can destroy them or do damage to them through proxy warfare, as we saw in Syria, a multi-billion dollar arm and equip program to... Uh, Salafi jihadist militias. Uh, th that's how the U.S. initially destroyed Afghanistan during mm -hmm. Operation Cyclone in the 1980s. That's what the CIA did. And then we have the whole drone prep program, the kinetic warfare, which was what Obama brought into force. Drone strikes and special forces being dropped in and out of countries anywhere in the world, a, a global war. Uh, when John Kerry ran for president against George W. Bush, he said, we need a smarter, sensitive, more sensitive way of waging war. And then Dick Cheney was always attacking him, you know, Mr. Halliburton for saying more sensitive. But what Kerry meant was just drone warfare and special ops. And so we will see a return to that with Afghanistan, as well as the economic war that's already begun on the Taliban government, where the U.S. has frozen $8.5 billion of assets that belong to the Afghan government, and it will only cause more poverty and suffering in that country. And uh, 
then there's the pivot to Asia, which is the most dangerous civilizational threat I think the world faces right now is a war between the US and China. That's a good point. Um, BetBeat Media said, weird thing is that also in Europe, the mainstream media supports the US wars. It's an international psychosis. Do you feel that the mainstream media has an obligation to do the right thing when it comes to discussing these wars and discussing what's really going on? Or do you feel that that's the president's responsibility to tell the people the truth? Well, the mainstream media in Europe is is part of the same media we face here. And it's controlled by the same forces, the same corporate forces, the same state forces. I mean, if you look at the BBC or Deutsche Welle, these are information warfare weapons that are actually projected abroad and work closely with the foreign ministry of those states. So Europe has been, its sovereignty has been sacrificed by the EU and that media is essentially the megaphone of the bankers cartel that we know of as the EU. And Europe is chomping at the bit right now for more independence and more sovereignty. A perfect example is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline which will provide cheap liquefied natural gas to Germany from Russia and is a major threat to the project that NATO wants to bring into force in Ukraine. Uh, And of course, Ukraine is the base of US hostile new Cold War operations against Russia. Germany resisted the US every step of the way there. They basically Heiko Maas, their foreign minister, told Biden, there is no way we are sacrificing this because we can't afford to ship natural gas over here across the Atlantic. It's really expensive. And, you know, Russia's right there. It's our neighbor. We've actually always had relations with them. Um, We're going to do this. And the Biden administration had to climb down and announce they weren't going to sanction it anymore. So they're trying all these tricks to stop that. And meanwhile, the Biden administration is punishing Europe for, I mean, uh, um, uh, Macron in France is trying to establish an all European army that's sort of peripheral or separate from NATO. And, and the Biden administration is punishing Europe right now by telling Europeans who are fully vaccinated that they cannot travel to the US. It's actually got, they've got like a travel ban on Europeans and it's making Biden extremely unpopular inside the EU. Europeans don't understand why they can't come to the US. Many of them have to quarantine in Mexico for like at least 14 days. It costs them thousands of dollars to to visit their families here. And they think that Biden is punishing Europe and trying to twist the arms of their government so they're less independent. So the US is, um, you know, it's, it's a ball and chain around the ankles of Europeans as well, not just Latin America Africa and the Middle East. Um, I want to give a shout out to the super chat. Uh, this isn't Jimmy Dore, Max. This is a different Jimmy Dore. But he said, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't well, know there was one. <laughs> he said, Will the squad demand the 300 million a day we spent on Afghanistan to now be spent back here at home? I want to get your opinion about the squad and how how great they've been in in all of this. I want to get your opinion about that. Do you feel like they haven't been demanding enough? I know you were at the Capitol like during the protests like recently. Uh, what has been your experience talking to them? And do you feel like there's more that they can do? Well, they have no real power. Their power is rhetorical and AOC's power is as a celebrity 
who transcends politics. She's sort of like an Obama figure uh, who will never obtain the power that Obama actually had, which he never used. Um, but they, you know, they've, they've spoken out about the cost of the Afghan war. Ilhan Omar has, Cori Bush has spoken out against the war state. She's connected the black struggle in the US to the Palestinian struggle. They make these statements, but what they fail to do is actually use their vote when the chips are down and the, the margins between the votes of the Democrats and Republicans are so close to actually twist the arm of democratic leadership and extract concessions on the key issue of empire. I mean, we see that they, they didn't do it on, on you know, forcing the vote on Medicare for all. They didn't actually do it on the eviction crisis, but even, but on issues of empire, that's like something that they have produced, they, they've done nothing on. So like when Gaza, when there was an assault on Gaza, Thomas Massey, who is a Republican libertarian from Kentucky, said, cancel all US aid abroad. And I was like, that's the more principled position than Israel is an apartheid state, pass it on. Because most US aid abroad goes to Israel and Egypt, and it goes to Egypt to pay for its military to prevent Egyptians from having a what they want, which is an actual war to liberate Palestine. Basically, the US just owns Egypt through the Camp David Agreement and all the aid it provides them. That's The US provides more aid to Israel than it provides to all of Africa every decade in one year. And then the aid to Africa is just like soft power. It doesn't actually change people's situation. In many ways, it binds them to the neoliberal reality that keeps them in poverty. So Thomas Massey's position, I thought, was much more principled than theirs. And the, you know what? When and then I see all these contradictions. Jamal Bowman he defeated Elliot Engel. Elliot Engel was the worst Zionist member of Congress. His name was on every pro-war and pro-sanctions resolution passed by Congress as a co-sponsor. So it's great that he got taken out. It was, you know, the people of the district spoke. And Jamal Bowman rises to the surface. And at the Capitol, you saw him with a big Wakanda Forever shirt that was shaped, the w, <laughs> shaped like a Wu-Tang logo. And he was talking about, we stand against colonialism and we stand against white supremacy. But a few weeks before, I remembered he took this gratuitous shot at Cynthia McKinney, someone who has not been in the Democratic Party for two decades is a totally marginal figure. I think she's affiliated with the Green Party and called her out for anti-Semitism because she said something about 9-11 in Israel. And it's like, he's still signaling to the Democratic Party leadership that he's one of the good ones and participating in a lot of um, anti-China legislation claiming he's not against colonialism if he's participating in the attempt to recolonize East Asia. So, you know, there are a lot of contradictions there and their rhetoric can only go so far. And of course, we haven't even talked about the eviction moratorium. Absolutely. Um, I want to give a shout out to Cheese Sandwich in the Super yeah. Chat. He said, um, in a recent video, Tulsi Gabbard said the U.S. has been ignoring the threat of radical Islamic terrorist groups. What might she be talking about? I mean, her comments were not as on point as I would have liked because she was warning that like Al Qaeda was coming to take over and that Islamic extremism was coming for us. 
it's like the kind of lunacy that we would hear from the the far right during the Bush era and the Obama era. Um, there's no threat of Islamic extremism taking over the U.S. It has no influence here. What she has done, though, is point out the fact that the U.S. armed and trained jihadist militias in Syria. And I defended her and supported her for that. I wrote about it in my book, The Management of Savagery, how I went to a Tulsi Gabbard press conference and was one of the few reporters there where she had introduced a resolution to stop funding Al-Qaeda, stop arming Al-Qaeda. The group responsible for 9-11, she only got 12 co-sponsors. Only one member of Congress was willing to appear at her press conference. And she was demonized because she touched the third rail, which is the CIA. Um, and it just shows how sick our national security state is. It shouldn't even be called a national security state because, I mean, look at what they did. Look at what they did. They, they put the most vicious, murderous, one of the most vicious, murderous organizations in the world on steroids. And now it's showing up in Afghanistan. Um, yeah. And she was driven out of the Democratic Party and driven out of politics for that. So here she is, and she's kind of like, dabbling in the right. She's in this kind of uh, strange political ecosystem that I don't, and I don't totally understand where she's gonna, gonna land. I mean, everything seems upside down right now. There's all the, all of these political alignments taking place. Um, but if she would just stick with that position that she took while she was in Congress and keep reinforcing that point about the dangers of proxy warfare, I think she'd be on solid ground. Good points. I want to get into the uh, no-fly bill because this was something that you pointed out recently on Twitter with Richie Torres. And I just want to share my screen really quick with this because um, I like I get the point that they're trying to make, but I just worry that this could this has us heading down a, a difficult path here. It says Congressman files bill to make vaccines mandatory for commercial flight. H.R. 4980, offered by Democrat Rep. Richie Torres of New York, directs the Secretary of Homeland Security to ensure that any individual traveling on a flight that departs from or arrives to an airport inside the United States or a territory of the United States is fully vaccinated against COVID-19. I have a couple of questions about this, um, but first I want to get your opinion about it. Do you think this is a good idea and yes, or why not? Well, can I ask her, are we on YouTube or just Patreon? We're on uh, YouTube and Rockfin. Okay. Cause you really can't, I, I, anytime I talk about this issue on YouTube, we get flagged as in violation of community standards. YouTube censors any discussion of COVID. So I don't want to put you in a position where you get a strike on your channel. Okay. So if you green light what I want to say, then I can say it, but YouTube is, is it's hard censorship mm -hmm. of this issue. Even if you speak out and, and say what Anthony Fauci is saying, you could get censored because it's all the algorithmic. I try to use words like, uh, the jab. Okay. The jab. I, yeah. I try to use words like that. I'll try, you know, but I just want to ask your enthusiastic consent to uh, talk about this because, you know, at the gray zone, we can't, except on Rockfin. Good point. Um, would you say 
yes or no like do you think this is a good idea like yes or no i mean it's a it, it, it is a disaster in waiting it's all and it's a disaster already unfolding and you know you can check my twitter account to see what i think about it people are you know insulting me with in familiar terms to try to shut me down on this issue but i see where we're going we already live in a caste system we already live in an oligarchy we already live in a in a and our caste system is reinforced by white supremacy and this is a bill that would further reinforce that caste system take millions of people who um, are already marginalized and prevent them from traveling for not taking a jab that does not prevent viral transmission i mean anthony fauci admitted that the cdc director admitted that when you take the jab it's for protecting yourself just like pretty much any jab but this is a you know, this is different than smallpox or polio. It's not an airborne rest. It, it's an airborne respiratory virus. It's not a static virus. So you're actually not threatening anyone, whether you took it or not, when you go on a plane, it's about your own choice. And so it makes no medical sense. It's deeply unethical. And we just saw 90 bus drivers, school bus drivers in Chicago forced off the job these are working class people, mostly people of color, because they wouldn't abide by the mandate. And that means that the school children who are mostly of color in public schools have no one to transport them to school. And the city is paying out something like $1,000 per student so that they can get to school on their own. And this is, you know, if you lo look at what's happening on the South Side, a lot of youth get targeted on their way to school if they're going through areas where you know that it's hostile territory um, that's why what Rahm Emanuel did when he uh, shut down all these schools and moved children to other schools was so disastrous and it actually cost lives so they're costing more lives and it, it makes no medical sense it's just to satisf satisfy the hysteria of everyone who's been taken in by the media's fear porn uh, and we're all we're just seeing the beginning of the assault on the working class here and we're just seeing the beginning of the anger that's going to pour out unless it stops yeah i agree um i work in education and the students came back this week and it's been a nightmare i've, I've talked about it i started talking about it monday like on my channel i was like oh my god get me out of here <laughs> like this is crazy they did not plan this out route like well at all uh, just a disaster. Um, I know you have a hard stop at 745. I do want to get your opinion about the eviction moratorium. Um, I am deeply concerned. I, I just know so many people that are just not going to have anywhere to go. Like even here in Boston, we don't have enough homeless shelters to house all of those people that are about to be evicted. And Nico brought up something recently today that actually makes a lot of sense. He said, even if the landlords do evict everyone. How is that going to put more money into the landlord's pockets? I mean, they're still going to be without money. And I feel like the squad, I feel like Joe Biden, I feel like Nancy Pelosi, they have not fought for this. They're not doing the things that they can do to protect people who are about to lose their homes. And I just feel like I'm going through 2008 all over again, because I remember people losing their homes during the housing crisis. Like, how is this happening like twice in my life? I want to get your opinion about that. Well, we need to ask why these people are on the brink of eviction as well. Uh, it seems to be because of the lockdown that was said 
to have been implemented to flatten the curve, but the curve was never flattened. So what was the point? Uh, was it worth it? Was the cost in human suffering? We see uh, child diabetes is now up massively, record opioid deaths up, uh, opioid deaths up 50% in West Virginia, 30% nationally. Uh, economic damage, like the kind that on the scale we witnessed in the US in 2020 causes excess deaths. Uh, University of Bristol study in the UK uh, theorized that 510,000 excess deaths could be caused in that country alone by their lockdown policy. So we need to really uh, put this in perspective and question whether we should go there again when these are the working class and poor that are paying the price. And uh, of course, what the squad did was provide cover for Democratic Party leadership to not do what it needed to do, which was to take a vote, force everyone to come back there. And what the squad's job should have been was mobilize people in a mass movement at the Capitol and not abandon the steps as soon as they got a temporary and conditional CDC moratorium, which was always going to be overturned by Brett Kavanaugh and the right-wing uh, Republican robots who are essentially controlled by remote control by industry and you know the big developers. It was always going to be overturned. So ultimately, all they did was buy a few days. So what else could have been done? What else could have been done? I mean, the Biden administration could have just told the Supreme Court to go fuck itself. I mean, that's what they could have done. They could have been like, well, we just don't agree. And we're just going to keep fighting you and kicking the can down the road. Um, cities are actually paying landlords right now in many cases. So, you know, evictions in Democrat-controlled cities, they might not be as extreme. Those are constituents of a lot of the Democratic leadership. So they're basically... We have a system right now where landlords are just getting paid by municipal authorities and you know the stimulus money was was paying them before. I mean what what was the stimulus money? All it was was it went through the the population into the hands of the credit card companies and the the rentier class. It's a lot like Afghanistan where it was just a way of washing money for the elites. Uh basically sending it to contractors Get, getting the money out of the pockets of the U.S. public and putting it in the hands of contractors and creating uh, wealth within the upper middle class and upper class. for a, That's what the war is about. And they couldn't have done it without a war. So the whole economy is structured in a completely, to use a Yiddish term, fakakta way. And the squad should be talking about that more but also, I mean, now it's about resisting the evictions themselves, like getting out in the streets and getting in the way physically. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about what could have happened if they would have like, if they would have planned this further in advance and told everyone, tweeted about it and told everybody, hey, we are going to protest at, at the Capitol about the eviction moratorium. I would have found a way to be in D.C. <laughs> like, I feel like people would have found. Oh, a way yeah, to be there. that's a great point. I asked Cori Bush, why didn't you all say anything? Why was it a last second thing? And she said, well, we have been sending letters and we have been trying to do stuff to prevent this. And then when we found out that Congress was going to recess without ruling on it, then we ran. We ran down the halls and we decided to get there and do something. So um, then, you know 
they said their strategy was to not play nice. AOC said, we're not going to play nice anymore. We're going to get in their faces and we're going to make them all come back and put their votes down, put their names down and shame everyone who supports the evictions. Then Chuck Schumer and, 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 you know, Adam Schiff show up and then they change their tune and they say, well, we just want this CDC moratorium. And then they left. So yeah. And no one could get, I, I was trying to get people down there on like the fourth or fifth day. You saw some members of socialist parties coming down. I can, they weren't really prepared, so they didn't have their own messaging. But what the good thing, what I, what I can say that Corey Bush did do was she did give those of us who are not captured by the Democratic Party an opportunity, if we could have gotten down there in large masses, to actually overtake the messaging of the squad and to start introducing our own message and our own plan, but that never happened. And the people that were on the steps, it was like 60, 70% their fans and their staff. So. <laughs> oh my the, gosh. Um, Robert Escobar show. Thanks for the super chat. He said, what should people face an eviction do right now? How do they hit back? Like organizing strikes on black Friday or hitting them where it hurts ideas. I'll tell you uh, my tip really quick is black Friday is a good one. I don't shop on black Friday. Anyway, it's, it's a disaster. It's, people are crazy out there during black Friday. Um, but the other one is there is a general strike coming up October 15th. Uh, don't forget about that, but you can, you can start right now, like not, buying goods from, from, from corporations. You can start doing that right now. You don't have to wait till October 15th. Um, you're going to have to protest. I mean, it, it's hard because like if you get evicted and you choose, you choose not to leave, then the police can come and they can forcibly remove you. Uh, what's your take on that, Max? I think there needs to be organization. Well, first of all, I, I'm, I work in the media, so I had my DMs filled up during the eviction um, uh, sit in at the Capitol with reporters, independent reporters asking if I know about any evictions taking place that they can cover so they can make this a bigger issue. And I think Black Friday is a good idea because when you get those crowds there, you get cameras there from local media, people being evicted could show up and, and not only strike, but protest. You got to get on camera. The media doesn't want to report on this. What the corporate media never does is go out and report on inequality by going to people's homes and going to their communities and showing the cost of the policies that are being cooked up in Congress on regular people. They prefer to cover like, uh, you know, zillions of people dying from COVID or like uh, Marines holding babies at the Kabul airport, they're, they're basically running an information war against us. And the, it has to be interrupted by people, people who are facing the effects of capitalism. And the only way to do that is to get organized and get to media. And right now, like, there's a lot of confusion on when, when the evictions take place. When I've seen them in the area I live, uh, which is like a community of like working class, mostly working and, and working poor people, in Southeast DC, it just happens like really fast. And then the people are gone and you just see all their belongings out on the street and it's too fast for anyone to get there. Um, so just as from the perspective of someone in the media, like those of us in independent media, we have a responsibility to cover it if we can. And housing as an issue is undercovered period. It's one of the most important issues to everyone. 
Um, the American public is being sanctioned right now by their own government. And, um, you know, if we can get the word out on social media, at least, and get cameras there and start making a bigger issue out of this, um, that's the best we can do. I can only speak for myself and what I can do. Well said. All right, Max, I know you got a jet in like two minutes. Is there anything you want to shout out, anything you want to plug and where can people find you? Well, yeah, you can find me at thegrayzone.com and Max Blumenthal on Twitter. And, you know, uh, I'll hope to come back on on the Savvy Savs live stream. And uh, we have I have my own Rockfin live stream now called Foreign Agents. Um, also, check out Moderate Rebels, my official YouTube podcast where we uh, fit in with the censorship guidelines of YouTube with Ben Norton. And yeah, there's always there's always more to say, uh, but I guess the last thing I want to say is Julian Assange is still in prison and he's not allowed to address the media. Yep. Well said. Max, thanks so much for coming on. Guys, I think Nick's going to jump um, at Socialist MMA. I'm sorry, I forget some people don't know him as Nick, is going to jump on for a couple of minutes. But Max, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks this a lot. Great. See you again. Bye. All right, guys, let me send um, Nick the link really quick. So hold on just a second, because I know Nick is probably like, you didn't send me the link. You didn't send it to me. Nick, I'm going to send you the link in uh, Twitter DM if you can hear me. I think you can. Um, that was awesome. Like, I really enjoyed um, talking to Max about that. He's very knowledgeable about these things. Um, it's always good to talk to people that are on the ground and that are, you know, have the opportunity to speak to the people. I just think that is so important. Um let me get my link here. Just a second. Let me close that. All right, Nick, uh, you're going to have to do something that I know you're not a fan of doing. You're going to have to check your DMs. <laughs> I'm about to send this to you now. Uh, let me go to do, do, do. Oh God, I ventured into message requests. That one's a woof. All right, send this. Yeah, but definitely like a great conversation, you guys. Um, let me tell Nick, I just sent it to him. Yeah, definitely a great conversation. Like I said, it's really important that you talk to people that are on the ground. Um, that is eventually something that those of us at FHL, we really want to do. We eventually want to get on the ground. Like once we get like the equipment and all that stuff, that's the plan. Sent link to your Twitter DM. Okay. All right. While we're waiting on Nick, I'm going to go to some of the comments in the chat. Oh, never mind. Nick's here. He's so fast. I swear to God. Like, how are you that fast? <laughs> <laughs> That's just so uh, hype I am to talk to my sister, Savvy. Especially <laughs> after that interview, especially after the conversation we had with Max. As soon as I saw that in the preview, I'm like, I definitely got to check that out live, uh, especially with the crazy stuff that's going on right now. I was going to jump on. Got to show a little bit later tonight, but I, I was not really like, oh, I got time. <laughs> like, once I'm back to it, I got time to talk to Savvy for a little bit. So, what I is up? 
I have to mention East Coast time because I forget. I told you, <laughs> East Coasters, we think everybody is on yeah. the same East Coast. I live in a flyover state. So <laughs> most of the time I had to deal with either West Coast or East Coast people. So I figured, like, all right, I think she meant Eastern time. I'm down, I'm down to jump on stream, talk some shit a little bit. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much, James, for the super sticker. Yeah, so, Nick, I want to get your opinion about the whole um, – you know, Biden thing with Afghanistan too, because I feel like the past couple of days, I just keep seeing people praise him, like leftists praising him, saying like, oh my God, he's doing such a great job, best president ever. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't understand why any anti-imperialist will be praising Biden right now. And I don't I don't understand this urge that people have to praise politicians where they feel the need that we have to praise politicians. They, they say, oh, if we don't praise politicians, if they do their job, <laughs> they'd be less likely or less inclined to do their job in the first place. Now, let's think about that. <laughs> this is completely ahistorical. This doesn't make sense. So when they do good stuff, they count that as them getting political capital. So then they can continue to do worse stuff. And we've seen Joe Biden continue to do that with Afghanistan. So I was raising the flag on this when they were continuing to increase the military budget. So I'm like, okay, if you get out of Afghanistan, we know that Af the Afghanistan war costs $300 million a year. Uh, sorry, a day. $300 million a day, the uh, a latest study said the Afghanistan war costs. So if you are getting out of that expensive war, why are you increasing the military budget? So when I saw that, I'm, like, I'm not going to pray Joe Biden. because. And then the funny thing is they actually said it. They was open. <laughs> Jim Psaki said it at one of our press conferences. We're like, yeah, the reasons why we need to get out of Afghanistan because we need to start investing more of our resources into fighting Russia, China. Apparently, they meant bombing Africa as well. Um, so it's like I don't understand why anyone who actually anti-imperialist don't understand that. And there is a clear, there is a difference between being anti-war and anti-imperialist. You can be all the above. But the people who are just anti-war, like, oh, yeah, we are Afghanistan. But if you're anti-imperialist, you know that we are still continuing covert operations in Afghanistan. That's why Biden bombed and uh, killed six uh, kids. Now, that's a whole nother conversation in itself. But my mindset was that we are out of a country. We're completely out. Now, we will we will see what uh, the Biden administration will continue to do. But as it is right now, they already signaled that they are going to continue uh, possibly looking for terrorist threats in Afghanistan. That would um unapologetic was talk talk. I know you mentioned him a little earlier, but this is kind of what he mentioned as well. This is what the Biden minister just said it was gonna do. We're not gonna give up the fight against terrorism in Afghanistan. What what that means? Like, I mean, are you still invested into that? Because that's not something anti-imperialist should be praising, right? Imagine if he took all of that energy and tried to fight for people right here in America. The funny thing is, when you listen to his speech, and Max Blumenthal was talking about this earlier, he, in order to justify, because he getting crucified by the mainstream media, um, that's crazy. I'm gonna do a show with him later today. Um, oh so, yeah, right, Karim. Uh, yeah, so he gonna justify. He got had to justify why he pulled out of the war. But if you actually listen to a justification why he pulled out of Afghanistan, that applies to all your conflicts, brother, <laughs> and. Right now, I don't understand why anyone would praise him or a party that's not giving us a fifteen dollar minimum wage, not giving us health care, and not cancel still loan debt. What they rather do? They fight. They rather fight a cold war against China and Russia right now. They rather bomb Africa. They rather continue to bankroll genocide in uh, Palestine as well. And they back in multiple uh, 
horrific neoliberal regimes like the Virginia and Columbia. A lot of people don't talk about that, but the Biden administration is actually close allies with Ivan Duque and they have shown support and their government is stamping down the protests in Colombia. So these people do not have uh, the best interest of non, I should say, I was about to say non-Americans, but actually I'll just say non-white privileged Americans because not like they care about black people here in America either. That's why they spend all these resources fighting overseas instead of taking care of our people in our own country. And that's what it means to be anti-imperialist. If they're not reducing the amount of resources and our money that we're paying them uh, in terms of Afghanistan war, there, there's nothing to praise there because they're just shifting one that resource and, shit and, and moving it to other adventures, which once again, non-conspiracy, they said this. <laughs> and they was open about it. That, and the neoliberals were cheering about this. Like, yeah, you, we need a smarter offensive game plan for uh, United States empire domination. So that's what it is. Yeah, Robert Hutching said Biden doesn't care because he knows he's a one-term president. Ooh. <laughs> so That's now they definitely, they definitely, I'll just try to hit, I'll just like a cream now what Tommy doing today. We'll be all for to have to let this. But yeah, it's also pretty funny because their numbers continue to go down. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And now Joe Biden is now fishing underwater for the first time in his presidency. And yeah. I was going to report on this. I guess we can talk about it now. We can do a little preview on that. Because now I was kind of flagging this before um, how a lot of people's Trump derangement syndrome is starting to wear off. Yeah. And, and Trump derangement syndrome is the idea, just to 100% explain what I mean. Trump derangement syndrome is the idea that somehow Donald Trump is inherently inferior or has the moral or that the Democratic Party has the moral high ground over Donald Trump. Now, everyone who knew the background of Joe Biden, like we was raising uh, this issue at Friday the Leftist and I was on my individual YouTube channel as well. If you, if you looked at Joe Biden's uh, resume and what he continued to advocate for, there's no one that's a bigger threat to black and brown communities. Yeah, Donald Trump is, is is a unique threat as well, but Biden is continuing that. Biden is continuing to fund ICE more. He's continuing to genocide in Palestine. He continued all of Trump's foreign policy. The Iran, and, uh, Iran, and I'm gonna cover this here very soon on one of my shows, the Iran foreign minister recently said that he like, there's literally no difference between Biden and Trump. Now you have Biden continuing the, the, uh, the super um, no holds bar approach against Iran. And remember when they was praying, they say, oh, we're going to get back into Iran deal. Trump has been unhinged on Iran. And Trump was unhinged on Iran, which is why I never understood why anti-imperialists praised him. But when Biden and Blinken took over, they continued Trump's policy in Iran. And now he, he just recently met with Natalie Bennett, the new prime minister of Israel, who, who is even crazier than that, not Yahoo is. And, and during that meeting, once again, I'm going to cover this on my show here very soon. During that meeting, he was essentially telling Biden, yo, we need a death by a thousand cut strategy in Iran. We got to do whatever we can, we can to prevent them from getting nuclear. And you know what the Biden administration response to that was? They said, we had great talks with Natalie Bennett, and we love the messaging and the communications between the United States and Israel right now. And Biden said he's 100% on board with that. Are, are you hearing the, the progressives that are praising, like the, the Kyle Kalinskis out here that are praising Biden? Are they talking about that? Are they bringing that up? Because this is the new direction the Biden administration is doing right now. They're shifting the focus to Afghanistan. They want to escalate tensions in Iran, and they are very open about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm interested to see this. I should, man, I should have looked this up beforehand. I'm interested to see what was Trump's approval rating this time during his presidency compared to Biden's because Biden hasn't made it through his first year yet. 
I actually do need to look at uh look to see where Trump was. I know Trump always his number was, numbers was always lagging, but uh to be underwater only seven months in, mm-hmm. it, that's devastating. And we seen uh, Joe Biden make the same exact mistake Donald Trump did. And, and a lot of people they just want to blame COVID. They're like, oh, COVID nineteen is responsible for uh, why the politicians' numbers are struggling. And I, I actually float the opposite. People need to actually think. Instead of just being reactionary, if you actually think about it, COVID-19 brings a tremendous opportunity for the otherwise deeply unpopular politicians. Look at people like Andrew Cuomo, who at first, now he's, he was forced into resignation because he was a scumbag, but he, his approval ratings were through the roof just because he was pretending to do the right thing. Now, imagine a scenario where COVID-19 hits and we have... Uh, the ruling class has actually decided to get people health care. They use that as an excuse to get people health care. They stand unemployment benefits. And I remember Trump, he actually uh, bumped up in the polls when he came out with Trump bucks, the first payment. Remember? A lot of yep. people did this. And Trump threw the entire uh, election away. Because if Trump continued to do Trump bucks like every month, uh, hell, even every two months, his his numbers would never drop. And there was people, even on Black Twitter, like, hell, Tr- Trump bucks. Hey, I don't care if Trump is mean. He's paying us. But then Trump stopped doing that. And then, then people are like, oh, this dude, he's, he, he don't care about us. Now, imagine we have a president that was constantly actually doing the right thing, which we can afford. Could we do the same thing to billionaires? We give them a ton of taxpayer money and corporate bailout money. So imagine we'd had that approach towards the working class. In that situation, no matter how bad things got in, how, how bad things get, people are like, okay, at least Biden gave me a check. At least Trump gave me a check. At least they gave me health care. I had a family member, he got COVID, and his life was saved because he had government health care. And this is what I was flagging people before. I was laughing at the people who thought that neoliberal capitalism is the answer to the COVID-19 crisis. Because there were studies that was already shown that if you had universal health care in America, it will actually save over one-third of COVID deaths. One-third of the COVID deaths will have been prevented if we had a national health care system. So that means if you are against Medicare for all and nationalized healthcare, it does not make a difference. And we've seen that with Biden. That's why things continue to get worse. That's why the idea that neoliberal capitalists will gonna take over and handle this crisis is ridiculous because that's the idea of thinking, oh, you just need a better manager. No, if you're a true leftist, you know it was systemic why mm-hmm. we didn't handle COVID-19. Right, Sabi? Exactly. I'm gonna um, shout out some of the super chats. Um, thanks so much, Franco. Franco's in the house. <laughs> Franco's so in the house. Thanks so much for the super chat, Franco. He said, after 40 years of listening to his his corp donors, leftist pundits actually believe demented Biden of all, all of a sudden stopped listening to them. Yeah, good point. And we have another one from Roger. Thanks for the super chat, Roger. Had an aha moment. People theorize as why MLK was assassinated. Be it started talking workers' rights, others Vietnam, but two months before death, he said reparations. That's a good point, Roger. Um, I want to uh, comment on um, the idea about people thinking that you know Joe Biden was was going to be different than Trump. One of the things that I I've said on here before is that. If the system, the current system remains the same, it doesn't really matter who you put in office. The system itself would have to change. That's why you you have someone like Joe Biden come in and he said he was running on the soul of America. He's still doing the same things that Trump did. And Nick gave a good example of that with the whole the prime minister situation in Israel. They got rid of one crazy nut job and then they got someone a lot worse. 
<laughs> so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, not, Natalie Bennett is about as bad as it gets because remember what they were calling Donald Trump and whether you want to agree or disagree with that, that's beside the point. But they used to call, they were like, Donald Trump is a white nationalist and this is why Donald Trump is so dangerous. And whether you agree or disagree with that, fair enough. But what Benjamin Netanyahu and Natalie Bennett are, they are ethno-fascists, which is 100% worse than white nationalism. And that's not even, that's without a, a there's no doubt in that statement because Natalie Bennett has multiple times called for the cleansing of the Palestinian people. The, Natalie Bennett, under uh, Netanyahu's rule, which is why he, why he actually rose to power, because he was the far right faction pushing Netanyahu to the right. The same, you know how like Joe Biden was pushing Ronald Reagan to the right in the 80s? That's like who, who Natalie Bennett is. And he was calling for the seizure of the West Bank. And even Netanyahu wasn't going that far. So Natalie Bennett right now is demanding more weapons, and that's what the Biden administration did. The Biden administration, Biden administration gave Israel more weapons deal, like Jamal Bowman. And I'm glad, I'm glad that Max Blumenthal mentioned this. You, you heard him say this earlier, how Jamal Bowman is being very loyal to the Israel lobby the same way uh, Elliot Engel was, the person he replaced. So it's like, what do we really accomplish? Because he, he voted. You, got, you guys think I'm being over dramatic? He voted for the Israel weapons deal. Drawing yep. Israel offensive into Palestine, that's yep. unforgivable. Ilhan Omar joined him with that on on that. So I'm glad that Max uh, flagged that. But how can you call an administration that is working working with Natalie Bennett and giving him weapons to siege and kill? And they already bombing Gaza. They killing kids in Palestine as we speak. Yep. And that's responsible. And that's the on the hands of Joe Biden, on Jamal Bowman, yep. the Israel lobby, and all their people who are simple. Uh, simple Simplify uh, sizes are to them. To them, so uh, that's why yeah, I don't buy. I don't buy the entire list or two evils nonsense. So, me neither. Thanks so much, Roger, for the super chat. I knew a brother who voted for Bush too because he gave checks. That's that's a good point, Roger. And I want to bring up something about the stimulus checks too. Even when I think when the first stimulus check they announced it was going out, and that was under Trump, I was still saying like that's not enough. And then they were like, we're going to send out a second stimulus check. And I was like, that's still not enough. And then Joe Biden was the one that promised people $2,000 checks. Shorted people, gave them $1,400 checks. And I said, that's still not enough. And the reason why I say that is look at where we are now. All these people are about to be evicted. Those stimulus checks were not enough for those people to keep their homes, for those people to pay their rent. And that's why I said, like, they were giving people $1,200 stimulus check. I'm like, dude, where I live, $1,200 doesn't pay rent at all. So you, you really, it really wasn't enough. I felt like they should have canceled rent for people. They knew, come on, because like anybody who's been behind, if you've ever been behind on your bills, or if you've ever been behind on rent, if you're behind on rent, unless somebody gives you money to pay it, it is really hard to get ahead on your rent. So how were all those people supposed to come up with the back rent plus the current rent that they now owe? Come on. Like, what were they thinking? And this is what capitalists always do, where they always give the proletariat, they give the working class crumbs and they give landlords everything. And it's funny how landlords, they always say stuff like this. Uh, they all, they're deeply unserious and they are... They always fight the class war as well. But they said, well, 
even though we have this, this is their argument that they use in court and, and why they justify getting money and shutting down uh, the moratorium. They say, hey, if you're a renter, you should have 12 months rent in advance. This is what the landlord said. They said, oh, it's not our fault that the economy crashed. We shouldn't be the ones over because if you're a renter, you should have 12 months in advance. Now, now think about how ridiculous this is because that's completely out of touch of the reality of the working class, but also they're not following their rule. You think you realize that? So they think that being a landlord is a job. Being a landlord is not a job. Being a landlord is an investment you make. You make an investment in the property, so it's not a job, and you are not owed returns. This is what they don't understand. So remember how they say renters should have 12 months and back rent saved up? Isn't it hilarious how they don't take that logic into their own, where they say, oh, you should have 12 months of, or actually, you should have like two, three years if you're an investor saved up so you don't go into the red. That is what a smart investor does. So you see all these stories that the corporate media is running, like, oh, this landlord is going homeless. This landlord is going bankrupt because the they're trying to uh, gain sympathy to the ruling class, the oligarchs. But remember, if you go by their logic, shouldn't you have 12 months <laughs> saved up just in case of a, of an emergency? You see you see how their logic <laughs> failed to work? But, <laughs> Anyway, don't don't do not get it twisted. This is why I want people to, to leave off with the eviction moratorium thing. Um, the Democratic Party is deeply class loyal and they work on behalf of their um donors. And a lot of the Democratic Party, including Nancy Pelosi, they are landlords. So they, they know exactly what side they are on. But so if you gotta allow um millions of people to go homeless and you a score a win for your landlord uh, landlords and for your community, because you are a landlord, you push it to the Supreme Court. You you maneuver in a way to push it to the Supreme Court, despite the fact that you you control Congress, you control the Senate, you control the White House, and the, and the Supreme Court in June, despite them being extremely right wing, just caught me off guard at the time. They said, "Yo, we actually going to side with you guys in the standard moratorium, but we do not agree that you should be able to do that to the CDC." So they was being nice. So you can attack the Supreme Court as an institution all you want, but in this particular case, they actually ruled to the left of what I expected. Because why I expected them, like, hell no, you can't do a eviction moratorium. Because we right-wing corporates. They say, bro, I am promise you, there are millions of people <laughs> that are about to go homeless. So we don't want this to happen. If you got, if you want to say this, you, you've got to go through Congress. So we're going to extend it, even though we disagree with you guys. But So that's why I don't blame just the Supreme Court, which is a broken institution. Don't get me wrong. But this is not on them. This is on Congress. It's on Nancy Pelosi because they knew in June they had to do something in Congress. But they kicked it to the Supreme Court, so they didn't take. Not only did they not take the political hit, they did try to score political points <laughs> using Cory Bush and his protest, despite the fact that you guys are responsible for this uh, happening in the first place. Isn't that hilarious? No, I agree. Um, my whole thing is um, I'm going by what Neymar is saying here. Good luck trying to apply for a lease, a lease back, a lease be approved when being evicted damages your credit score. And that's another thing. All these people that are going to be evicted, they're going to have evictions on their credit. So it's going to be harder for them to find another place to live. That's going to be a, such a devastating crisis. Like this is a society of stabilizing event. And our ruling class, they are so greedy. They don't even care because they know they will be fine. They can hire security forces. They can always relocate. But when you have millions of people going homeless and now you have, and that's a great point. I didn't even really consider that point. And you have a lot of people that won't be able to get places later. This is, that's a society to stabilize an event. And a lot of people don't know how bad it's going to get if, 
if people allow this to happen, it's only to get worse. And you guys think it's going to stop here? <laughs> it's not going to stop here. You're going to have millions of people go homeless um, when uh, the moratorium, as it's happening right now. But then next year, you're going to have more people go in economic distress as capitalism continue to fail. So then you can have more people go homeless. Like, this is not going to stop. So what, what kind of precedent is this setting by not acting and doing everything you can to protect the homeless? But that's that's um, something that we always see in the Democratic Party uh, Institute. They have anti-homeless architectures in their blue states in California, in New York. And people wonder why I don't see them as the champions of the working class. No, I agree. I mean, it's just... I'm, if you think about cities like LA, where there's already, you know, large tent communities, homeless people, just think about what it's going to be like next couple weeks. And unemployment's about to stop. And this is the point I was making in the comments a little bit earlier. The ruling class knows exactly what's coming. And that's why you see them teaming up with Republicans in order to spend the police state. We have seen, and then now we got a lot of police that are like protecting Whole Foods down where they have the hurricane at, and they are protecting property instead of delivering aid to the people. I don't have the number on top of my head. I retweeted it. Maybe I can find it to back my source up. But they are spending an un, un, unbelievable amount of money protecting property and having anti-looting forces. Instead of using that money to actually give aid to people, there are a lot of people who are stranded in, because of this storm. They're not doing that. They're protecting the property in the ruling class. And that and that and that's the institution that both parties agree unanimously to give more money to because they know that millions of people are going to be homeless. They know that social up order need to be upheld and with the iron fist that we have not seen in such in a long time. We're at the point where we see homeless tents and encamp, uh, uh, encampments being uh broken up uh, at gunpoint. Like we've seen police literally uh, kick out a homeless encampment in California at gunpoint. I covered that on my show. So this this is just the beginning. It's going to get worse until we actually start having very serious conversations about uh, actually opposing state violence, which you're not seeing nobody with a, a like in none of the progressive politicians, none of the just the Democrats, none of the big people that who got giant platforms. They're not taking this on. They're still playing the red blue game. And that's not what this game is about anymore. It's about the ruling class versus uh, the proletariat. It's the elite in the in the military and the police complex against the black and the brown and indigenous communities. And where are the white allies going to fall in that fight? Are they going to continue to prop up politicians? Are they going to continue to donate to campaigns instead of mutual aid? Are they continue to prop up the police force and the police state? Are they going to stay silent on uh, the unhinged expansion of the U.S. empire? Are they going to continue to vote for Democrats every two years? We already see who are who are deciding to fold and who deciding to fight. Um, and Max Blumenthal, like you talked to earlier, he's one of the people that's fighting. He one of the people that actually yep. calling out the wrong class. Frank analysis, we saw him in the comment ch- section a few times. He one of the people that actually stand up and fighting and demanding better of our politicians. So that's the split. And the people that want to take it easy, they don't want to focus on state violence too much. And the people that like us who say no, that's that's unacceptable. Yeah. Uh- Speaking of, of politicians, by the way, and I'm um mention Megan's comment here. I got a text message the other day from Bernie Sanders campaign asking for money. I'm like, are you kidding me? Why are you asking for money again? Are you kidding? I'm not. No, no, no. I'm not giving more money. I want my money back. 
I want my money back. Megan says, if the squad in Congress actually thought housing is a human right, they would have laughed at the pathetic offer of just $1,200 for the people versus fighting to cancel rent back in spring 2020. Mm. Well said. And there's literally no reason. <laughs> and I got them text before. I got them text as well uh, from Justice Democrats or, or whatever. <laughs> I can donate. And I'm like, you out of your god dang mind. <laughs> you know what they're doing right now? <laughs> you know, Bernie and them is holding town halls to pass Biden's agenda. And I know there may be good, some good things in the infrastructure deal, but doesn't that say a lot that Biden is, I mean, Bernie is, is holding town hall for the Biden agenda, but he's not holding town hall for Medicare for all? Because their goal, the goal of the Justice Democrats is to pass Biden agenda and to pass the agenda of Democrats and do not push them left. Despite what they said, they said they were going to put Biden left, but nope, they're not going to make the Democrat Party uncomfortable. They're not going to demand Medicare for all. You you can do the infrastructure rally in Indiana that way everyone was talking about. I'm praising. I'm like, why are you not why are you not doing a rally for canceling rent? <laughs> why are you not doing a rally for uh, defunding ICE, which Biden administration continue to prop up? You see how they are are, are sheepers of the Overton window. They like all right. At this point, at further the furthest we can go is center left, and I mean like. Center, center left, <laughs> like not <laughs> like I mean, so so center to the left that they're not even pushing a public option, which is trash. <laughs> so that just shows you why you should never donate to these people again. Like that's beyond that's the dumbest thing you can possibly do with your, with your money right now. It's to donate to Justice Democrats or Bernie and these people, and they just want to pass Biden's agenda. Doesn't make any sense. And take that money and donate it to mutual aid, and especially for all these people that are about to be evicted. And I'd feel bad, like honestly, if if I was a pol- if I was a candidate and I was running right now, I would feel bad asking people for money, considering everything that's going on. I would feel bad. I would just you have know, to say, you know what? Put that money towards towards the help the people that are about to be evicted. There are relief uh, uh, aid funds for uh, the Hurricane Ida. There's I've seen a lot of links uh, been passed around in terms of how you can help people that was impacted by storm. Imagine asking for money for people instead of doing, like, why would you do, why would you give money to a politician instead of relief efforts towards this hurricane? That's insane to me. That's insane that people would do that. Shout out to Roger Meadows for the super chat. Vote down ballot, start ballot initiatives, charter public banks, and support the United States Federation of Worker Cooperatives that help start up co-ops. 100% agree roger roger's really big on like worker co-ops and he talks about them um on here a lot um i think that's what we need to do like we need to it's like when ryan knight came on he was explaining that like people criticize socialism so much but and with socialism you actually own the means of you you own a piece of your labor you own a piece of your work we don't own anything right now anything i produce at my job it's not really mine. It's not really mine. It's like, why do you think they have share drives? Everybody put all your put all your information on the share drive. So when you leave, somebody else can just access what you created. I mean, it's just we don't really have we we don't have that. And I would encourage everybody to go on Facebook. I saw a couple of groups, mutual aid groups set up for people for um, people in Louisiana for the hurricane. Um, and I just thought to myself, like, here we go. I hope this is not Katrina again all over. I remember so many people were displaced. Um, 
And yet, and, and they're still trying to evict people. And that's what really frustrates me. It's just, it's, it's cold, it's callous. You would never see this happen in, in other countries I've lived in. You would never see this happen, only in America. I always talk about corporate propaganda and the propaganda that I saw someone highlight. I want to, I want to dive into these numbers here uh, shortly, but there've been a lot of coverage of the Hurricane Ida and one thing that I found very interesting, how the corporate media was refusing to actually say like climate crisis. And someone, I'm, see, I'm trying to see if I can find a tweet, but someone actually looked up how many segments they've done and how many times they actually mentioned the climate crisis. And they were just not bringing it up. And this is something that we have to uh, drive home, that this is this is because um, we had the ruling class for the last few decades ignored this crisis. Now we're deeply in it. And we got to start thinking about very carefully how we can spend our resources because climate disasters like these are, are going to increase even more. So if, if we actually going to be smart about how we can spend our resources, we need to start thinking about how we're going to start protecting and donate to funds uh, to support people who are going through these things instead of um, wasting your money donating to a losing campaign like a lot of people did earlier this year, unfortunately. Yeah. One thing I would recommend to people too, and I, I was guilty of this for a while is like, if you're moving instead of like, cause I used to like donate stuff to, I, I clean out, like do this thing where I clean out my closet once a year and I would like, oh, okay, I'm going to donate all these clothes to like Goodwill. Uh, don't do that because people still have to go to Goodwill and they have to buy it. They have to pay for it. So what I would do differently is now I would donate those clothes, like those items to mutual aid groups. And there's a bunch of them on Facebook because I've, I've seen them and I've sent them to other people as well. Um, there are people that need, they need clothes. Some people need help with like paying their rent. Some people need, some people like even in my neighborhood, there was a mutual aid request for people to pick up prescription medications for people. Some people, especially that are elderly, they live by themselves. Their family's not around to help them out. They can't really leave the house and get around like that. And they need people to, to pick up their medicine and stuff for them. Um, so those groups are out there, but everybody, you can go to mutualaidhub.org and you can see all the mutual aid groups that are in your area. I highly recommend that you use that site. The fact that we don't have like a, a structural um society invested way to give people like sick people their medicine sick people their groceries kind of show how our system was broken isn't it i was laughing about this on my show last night how you and there was we was examining the supreme court reasoning behind not staying the eviction moratorium which once again the supreme court is a deeply broken institution designed to halt progress that's why it doesn't make any sense why anyone would kick a, a giant decision like this to them and the reason why I bring this up, because during when they was talking about this, they said, oh, if we extend, if we allow the CDC to extend the eviction moratorium, that would set a dangerous precedent. That mean they that mean they might be able to set a precedent where you can have free grocery deliveries for mm -hmm. sick and uh, people that are not able to leave home. And then when I said that, everyone was like, bro, this is that's actually a great idea. Why would mm -hmm. you before that? They said they will actually set a precedent where the CDC can say we got to institute high speed Internet in rural areas where people need to work at. That's a good idea. <laughs> so you guys yeah. see the system designed not to actually implement real policy that would help people. Can you imagine we actually had a government that actually cared, actually um, was able to get people high speed internet 
um, in rural areas that was able to deliver groceries, uh, medicine uh, for sick and elderly people. Like that's actually good policy that we can easily pay for instead of getting corporations trillions of dollars, right? Yep. Uh, Megan said, thanks so much for the super chat, Megan. I got the same text, Sab. <laughs> I replied, please don't ask me for money for, <laughs> please don't ask me for money for no longer existing organization. Our revolution since changed. It's too pragmatic. It's too pragmatic progressives. And why should I give money when Bernie stopped fighting before his debate with Biden last year? Yeah. Our revolution, like national, our revolution is, uh, has changed. I don't, I don't understand what's happening with them. I did see, uh, the South Carolina, the local, our revolution channel, uh, chapter challenge, uh, Clyburn though. And Clyburn was just ridiculous responding to them, of course. But, um, yeah, after Biden won, it's interesting how many organizations and groups were just kind of like, okay, yay, Trump's out. Let's just, you know, let's just roll with it. Yeah, their goal is just to continue the Democratic Party agenda and, and only go as far left as the party is comfortable. The party have actually shifted them to the right <laughs> instead of them shifting the party to the left. So these kind of things that we we're talking about, there's literally no reason why ALC and Bernie Sanders couldn't use their giant email list to create yeah. mutual aid networks. And someone made a good comment. I think it was Ramsey. He left a great comment, like, yeah, uh, don't donate to charities, donate, because charities are kind of scams. And I do I, I do want to back that up, and this is important as leftists to understand the difference between mutual aid and charity. So you got to be very careful, because there, there are even some places that call themselves charities, but they may uh, distribute their funds in a mutual aid way. So what I mean by this, what we do not want to do is donate to charities. Charities is, by definition, top up. Top down, I mean, sorry, top down, top down. So it ran by philanthropists, by business owners, by corporations, and they use it mostly as tax write-offs, where a lot of the money is actually being spent in administration costs. So you're paying a lot of the salaries of people who run the charities, and that money actually don't go to the cause. But mutual aid is all about building horizontal structures, horizontal structure of solidarity that actually has long-term effects that we can actually uphold people's lives. Instead of just having charity, they're not actually going to help. Mutual aid is all about building that infrastructure that we need to strike, that we can have so people actually can feed their kids. That is not what charity can do. So even when you look at organizations on what we can give money to, look, make sure it has a horizontal structure instead of a, a top-down structure. That's the important thing to keep in mind. So that's a great point. That's on the comments. Yeah. Um, thanks for the super chat, Roger. If Dems are smart, they'd get Briar off SCOTUS before 23. But they're not they're not too smart, Roger. Like that's <laughs> they're not too smart. But uh no, I agree with you, Nick, about charities because I found out a couple years ago that even the Red Cross, I thought that was like a cool, legit <laughs> charity, and finding out like how much money they, they keep for themselves. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's why that's an important thing to um there's some places that are technically charities. Uh, but yeah, they're top up because it's only take care of the. Hey, yeah, that's a good point, Leroy. <laughs> it's only take care of the top. Um, and there's a few comments that that pointed out how yeah, a lot of those, a lot of funds that they raise actually don't go towards a cause. So mutual aid is is more than charity. I mean, I saw Ryan Grimm. He was talking to Franco. He was like, "Oh, you can't. You gotta just advocate for charity. Like that, you don't even know the difference. Like mutual aid is about having building a solidarity network 
Mm-hmm. So it actually is uh, can be foundational. And you say, oh, this is not a way you can change society. Well, you're not going to change society through electoralism. <laughs> so you yeah. might as well make sure people are taken care of in this late-stage capitalist hoho that we live in right now. That's what mutual aid is all about. That's why what Rome does with Tour for the Poor, that's what Infinity Mutual Aid, that's what Casey Tennis Mutual Aid is all about. Because Casey Tennis, technically, like if you look at it, they're like, oh, it's, it's charity. But no, it's actually mutual aid because they're building a structure out of the way they actually support supporting people. And that's the primary difference. So that's very important yeah. for everyone to understand. Yeah, we have a there's a lot of mutual aid groups here in Massachusetts. Well, in eastern Massachusetts. Um, that's why I, I highly recommend people check out that website, Mutual Aid Hub. Um, especially since we're going into winter, you guys, and some of these people about to be kicked out may need coats, boots, gloves, hats. It gets cold here. I know, I know it's it probably gets really cold in Missouri too, right, Nick? Yeah, our weather, our weather, our weather is all over the place. <laughs> so it's it's really hot during the summer. It get really cold in the winter. Um, that's mostly just extreme weather. I don't remember it being like that growing up. Like we had like four seasons. Now it's like kind of like two and a half. <laughs> so it's like it's like it's really hot, then like really cold, and then we have like a small. We may have two months where it's warm, but other than that, extremely hot, extremely cold. And I don't remember it being like that. Like I remember we having we had like three different kind of. Uh, we had the summer, fall, winter, spring. Now it's like way more extreme, way more extreme. That's what we're seeing in, uh, in terms of the climate crisis getting worse. So that's kind of what we expect. I agree. All right, guys, we're coming up on 830. It's about time for me to wrap up this thing. You know how I do. I got to get ready for the students tomorrow. Uh, but I do want to say this again for those of you. I see a lot of pe- new people in the chat that FHL is on the road to 10K. And we've been using the hashtag FHL to 10K. Nick can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So that's our that's our really ambitious goal. We have grown as far as we have only because a word of mouth. Because <laughs> not like the algorithm really helped us out. So we have a lot of great people that have been sharing. Um they like this. They like our, our, our show a friend and left it. So they share it to a friend. That's pretty much how we got to where we are right now. So that's why we started this initiative. So if anyone just share it to one friend, I'm pretty sure it, it, they don't even have to be leftists. I promise you, we can win a lot of liberals and a lot of conservatives over. So share it to your friends and help us spread our message. Um, I have a, I have a show I'm doing with a group, Kareem Batesh and Peter Beatty. We dive more into what happened in Afghanistan, imperialism. Um, we talk about Tulsi and her take. Um, and how, how she actually kind of being a youthful idiot uh, for pro-war propaganda. So we're going to talk about that here, um, I think, about an hour now. So, uh, But we got great content every day. We got a lot of great guests coming uh, through this week. Um, so I'll announce that very soon. But otherwise, uh, keep uh, hitting the bell on Savvy Sap Show, on Frampton Lessons, because we got a lot of great content. Savvy mentioned it earlier. Um, we have... A lot of plans for the future. So, like, we're more than just like a group podcast. We're a legitimate organization, activists, and we want to help organize mutual aid. Like, Rome about to be back on tour for the poor. Finney running mutual aid drives. We want to be out there in the street, actually running stuff and um, showing people how politics should be done. Instead of just saying mutual aid, we want to be a part of that fight. So, that's the future of FHL. So, help us uh, grow and see if we can hit that 10K mark here soon. Yes, indeed. And Nick, don't you have a stream coming up tonight? Yeah, I think I think we're gonna shoot in about for about an hour, nine thirty Eastern. Once again, Cream, Patash, and Peter Beatty gonna be on. We're gonna talk about 
Uh, that's usually our international leftist coalition panel. We can talk about some foreign policy. We can talk about the media propaganda um, with Afghanistan and how they drum support towards war. And Tulsi Gabbard actually came out with a statement. I saw someone on the comment mention it. And that's very problematic. It's not an uh, anti-imperialist take. And we're going to break that down while we say that. So um, any politician can get it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was on the Vanguard, and there was a lot of Tulsi fans out mad because we went after Tulsi. But, bro, I'll back the squad. I'll back Bernie. Any politician can get it. So uh, Tulsi fans probably not going to be happy tonight. But there's a lot to say about her recent take. Awesome. And guys, as always, if you want to support the show, you can do so on patreon.com slash Sabrina Salvati. If you want to support FHL, you can do so on Kofi. That's Kofi.com is scrolling across the bottom of the screen, FHL network. And Nick, thanks so much for jumping on. This was cool. <laughs> Nick is so I'm fast. Always down. I'm always down. If I, like you got, you saw me leaving comments. I was like, oh, I'm, I can always down jump off stream. I just got to set up my computer. It's always fun. Like I said, I got to get ready for my stream here in an hour. So I like it'd be a great little warm up conversation <laughs> before my stream. It's always fun to mix it up with Savvy. Great thanks community that we have here. On. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Nick. All right, guys, to the rest of you, you know how we do this. Have a good night. Keep up the fight.